Welcome to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm excited to be joined this week by Kevin Phelan, who is a 1980 graduate of the university with his MBA, and more recently a member of the inaugural cohort of the Inspired Leadership Initiative here on campus. And for the first time on the podcast, we will have a guest joining us remotely, as Kevin is in Salem, Massachusetts. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks very much, Dan. If you would, just give us a sense of your background and upbringing, where you're from. I was born in Denver, Colorado. My dad was a Denver fireman and went to the University of Northern Colorado for a couple of years on an athletic scholarship, and then I transferred to Regis College because I had an interest in discerning the priesthood. Uh-huh. Uh, so I got my degree from Regis in uh, 74, went to work for a few years for a sporting goods store uh, company, and then I ended up returning to the University of Notre Dame or going to the University of Notre Dame to Moreau Seminary in 1977, and then stayed on to get my MBA. Great, great. What would you say was instrumental in your upbringing that even led you to the point of discerning the priesthood? Both my parents were pretty serious Catholics. They sent their three sons to Catholic schools, and that was a challenge for somebody who's, you know, the the breadwinner of the family was a fireman, and they're not compensated extraordinarily well. Sure, yeah. So, you know, that was seeing the sacrifices that they made to get us a Catholic education was a big part of me seriously, taking my faith seriously. And then I can't really, the priest had always said, you know, if, if it's a thought that comes into your mind on a somewhat regular basis, that's a sign that you might have a vocation and mm-hmm. you should at least seriously consider it. My dad believed firmly that if I was going to become a priest, that was fine. But that I really needed to know how to make a living. Okay. So that accounted for, after I graduated from Regis, not entering the seminary immediately, but going out and working for a few years before I decided that I should give it a more serious look. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there was something that attracted you to the Congregation of Holy Cross specifically that you ended up coming to Moreau? Yeah, a priest that I got to know in high school, he was actually a priest in resident at my high school, his father, Claude Pomerleau, mm-hmm. and he was a Holy Cross priest, and he and I stayed in touch, and as he saw me getting more serious about actually entering, he made a pitch for Holy Cross. I'd actually looked at the Archdiocese of Denver, the Jesuits, sure. and I think it was the connection with Father Claude that got me to actually apply for Moreau at Notre Dame. Yeah. What was that overall experience like as a seminarian? Well, I was a seminarian in the mid-1970s, which was a pretty tough time, I think, to be <laughs> in the seminary. Tumultuous, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was tumultuous, and there were a lot of things that were probably more of a challenge for me than they should have been. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I kind of had an image of the priesthood and what I wanted to be like as a priest. And those experiences weren't lived out in my year at Moreau. There was just a lot of, it was a lot more open, a lot more 
open in terms of theology and in terms mm-hmm. of the different practices that were going on. Yeah. So when I left, I actually had a conversation with the rector of the seminary, Father Kelly at the time. And he said, you know, it's probably you've, you've seen it, you've lived it for a year. Right. Why don't you take a couple of years, think about it and kind of let God help you determine whether or not you should return here, go to a diocese or, or decide that you're, you'll live out your life as a layman. So mm-hmm. that was very good advice. And he assured me I would have been welcome back if I chose to come back. So it was good advice. Yeah, I think sometimes there is a fear about even exploring an option like the priesthood that on your first day, you don't go in and, and take final vows or, or receive holy orders, that it is a it is a discernment, it's an ongoing process. And even in your case, even though you didn't end up becoming a priest, I'm sure that that was a valuable time or that you draw lessons from that time that help you, you know, in your life now. Yeah. Well, it, it actually had much more of an impact on my life than I would have imagined at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that year at Moreau, I met a Jesuit priest named Father Robert Morlino. Mm-hmm. And years later, he would be the bishop that would hire me in both the Diocese of Helena, Montana and the Diocese of Madison, Wisconsin, to be, he hired me to become his chancellor specifically because of the sexual abuse crisis. He wanted someone that he knew well and felt he could trust. Yeah. So while I spent 25 years in corporate America, I eventually ended up uh, succumbing to his constant request <laughs> that I join him. Came back full uh, circle. <laughs> Yes, it was a it was a brilliant move on my part to leave the salaries of corporate America and to go to work for the church. That was, <laughs> uh, that was a brilliant financial move on my part. A little difference part. there, yeah, exactly. So, what prompted you then to you decide to to leave the seminary and then go towards the MBA? What was what was your motivation there? I think I wanted to stay close to Notre Dame, and I wanted to stay close to some of the relationships I built at Moreau. Because I wanted it to be, a, I wanted to continue in the discernment mm-hmm. and just not, I knew that if I just went back to my former life working in sporting goods, that likely I'd be pulled in a different direction. And I wanted the time to discern. So while I was still at Notre Dame, I was, I worked actively in the halls. I was an RA in Grace and an assistant rector at St. Ed's. Okay and kept the kind of relationships that would help me continue the discerning process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as someone who wasn't an undergraduate here, what was life like in the halls? Was that different than your own experience of college, or what was life-giving about being in the halls with, with the undergraduates? I think Grace had the problems that, I mean, the, the reason Grace is no longer a dorm is because they recognized that Flannery and Grace had the kind of unique problems. They weren't able to create the kind of whole life that they wanted. Uh And so that's why neither one of those are dorms any longer. I think particularly when I got to St. Ed's, Father Mario Patey was the rector there. And he and I became very close. He was a very holy guy. Mm -hmm. And so he helped in terms of the discernment process for me as well. But the the whole life at Notre Dame, I thought, was very spiritual. It was centered on Mass every night. It was centered on 
the kind of conversations with the guys about what they wanted to accomplish, how they wanted to accomplish it. There was a, as you're probably aware, the Notre Dame, the guys who went there when I was there, and even more so today, mm -hmm. they're very accomplished sure. young people. Mm -hmm. They're very bright. They're very hardworking. They have their own ideas in terms of how they want to live their lives and how they want to make contributions. And so it was a real challenging time because you realized how much raw talent was there and you wanted to do everything you could to support it. You know that was kind of the life of a of an assistant rector, an RA, right. or a rector. They were they were there to support the guys in the hall and and help them become the best they could be at whatever they chose to do. So right. that was a a very enlightening time for me and a very challenging time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you got to the point of the end of the MBA. What was the discernment like relative to priesthood or moving on from that? There's an old saying that not making a decision is a decision. <laughs> so honestly, when I graduated, I had met a congressman, Notre Dame grad Ron Mazzoli from mm -hmm. Louisville, Kentucky, and he offered me a job as a legislative aide in his office. So I really didn't think I was leaving discernment behind, Okay, but that was a real interesting time and a real interesting challenge. It was the last year of the Carter administration, the first year of the Reagans. So it was a very fascinating time, the Iran hostage crisis. Yeah. And so I went uh, in my head, I was basically just going to Washington for kind of an advanced degree in political science, because that's what it turned out to be. And wasn't really a hard decision of me that, okay, I'm not going to consider the priesthood any longer. That really never happened. Okay. It was more that my life just kept taking certain directions that put that on hold. I see. And what did that then lead to in terms of getting really underway with your career? I left Congress after a year, left the legislative aid job after a year. And my father had died mm -hmm. in later in 1980. I realized my mom, who was a strong woman and as solid as a rock, but she was without the man she had spent her adult life with. Yeah. And she was having, you know, some, not problems per se, but she was kind of lost. I sure. think that happens to a lot of people when they lose a spouse. So again, not really saying I'm not going to be a priest, but simply saying, okay, right now I'm needed here. I went back to Denver, and while I was helping her sort out the estate and all that, those kind of questions, I applied for a job with the Bell System, AT&T, and was hired into their management development program. And so, again, it wasn't a hard decision. I'm not going to consider the priesthood any longer. It was more a decision that this is where I need to be now. Mm -hmm. And so that's what started my career in business. I stayed with Bell for, I think I said 25 earlier, I think 23 years I was actually with them. I actually, I was with Mountain Bell, AT&T, Lucent Technologies, and Avaya Communications. And I left Avaya to go to work for the bishop. I see. What were some of the lessons of being in a more corporate setting and yet being a person of faith that you tried to bring perhaps the values of your faith or the way that you treated people into a, a workplace like that? It was kind of fascinating. I'll, I'll say that I had some, some very good 
touchstones in, in Father Morlino and Father Mario Patey and a few other good and holy men that I got to know. But it was it was a challenge in that, again, we're talking the 80s and 90s, there wasn't, there was, there was a big diversity push in, in American corporations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it wasn't really diversity that included one's faith. I see. And I was on a management track. That was what the whole management development program was for, to test you at different levels of management within the corporation. And I got to see a lot of what I thought were very good, ethical, faithful people manage teams. And I got to see some that were not Mm -hmm. that way. And so it kind of convinced me that the right way to do it was the same way that you would do it with your family, with your children, with your friends. You would you'd challenge them to be the best they can be, mm-hmm. but you'd also be very empathetic with their challenges. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I, I can't say I really coined this term, but I'd never heard it before, so maybe I did. <laughs> we'll give you credit. Okay. It's until somebody comes up and says they did it first, I'll, I'll take it. Okay. It was a concept of management as ministry uh-huh. because to get the most out of your people, you were kind of, you, you were ministering to them mm-hmm. and they were kind of ministering back to you. I mean, it was uh, the organizations that seemed to work the best, the teams that came together and accomplished incredible things were teams where there was a real spirit that we care about each other. We want each other to succeed. We're going to help each other succeed. And if someone fails, we're going to kind of prop them up mm-hmm. and and help them understand where they went wrong. And so to build that kind of a mindset within within a management team really convinced me it was the right way to go because the, the more results oriented managers that cared for nothing other than results generally didn't accomplish them because they didn't really have their team with them. Yeah. Somebody coined a phrase though and said this wasn't me, but I remember hearing it. It was I don't care how much you know until I know that you care. Hmm. Yeah. And, and and it was that was kind of one of the bedrocks. I learned that when I when I could convince my team, and there were some union, as a matter of fact, probably the the most populated job title that I ever managed were were mostly union guys uh-huh. who did not particularly trust managers. <laughs> but if I could get, if I could demonstrate to them that I was for real, that I really did care about their lives, that I cared about their success, that I cared about what was going on in their lives. That was that was kind of a bedrock of of creating the environment. Yeah, that there's a human element there that people aren't machines and and to treat them only with results in mind, but to acknowledge their humanity and dignity in that work, I think is is an important principle that no matter what kind of work we're in, we we want to bring that element to it. I think what you said is is very true, and uh, when. When you create that kind of environment, the results that you can accomplish are really off the charts Mm -hmm. because people start contributing in ways that they never envisioned themselves contributing before. Yeah. So 
it, it's very powerful and it makes what would have otherwise simply been a job that you do, you know, for promotions and money and results and all that. It, it became a job that you did because of what you could accomplish with your people. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was, that was really what motivated me. I'll say once I figured that out, I wish I'd walked in the door with <laughs> the knowledge I had when I walked out the door. Right. But the reality is I learned all this. And, and as I got better and better at applying the learnings, that was when my career really took off. Mm-hmm. And what about family and important relationships during this time? How did you balance some of the demands of being a manager and a major company and all those things with being true to other family and relationships? Well, that was a unique challenge. I'm a little different than most because I got married very late in life. Uh When I returned to Denver to help my mother sort out, you know, her life after my dad's passing. Yeah. In a couple of years, I was promoted to New Jersey headquarters. And then she, my mother fell ill with COPD Hmm. and I was in a position where I had to go back to Denver. Yeah. So those were the challenges, my family challenges. It wasn't a wife and kids of my own. It Uh was, you know, kind of helping my elderly parents. And so I actually, I was probably the classic workaholic. If, I mean, I, I did take the time to make sure my mother was fine, but Mm -hmm. I worked long, long hours and that was that was kind of corporate America at that time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that whether it's, it happens earlier or late in life, I mean, I think there's a, sometimes a common experience of the parent-child relationship being inverted, that as we grow older and sometimes our, our parents grow more frail, that all of a sudden they're dependent on us when for most of our childhood that we were dependent on them. And there is a an element, I think, in our faith that, think about the fourth commandment or just care for our parents, that it is it is part of our faith to to respond when the ones who have loved us are in some kind of significant need. And I I think that's gonna be more and more going forward because people are living longer. So for example, I married my wife in 2002, and for the first 14 years of our marriage, her mother was a a constant part of our life. She lived with us for a number of years. Uh Then my wife would take long periods of time to go take care of her mom because she was getting getting up there in years and was, I'll say, losing a step. Yeah. So, yeah, it it became, I I think it's much more, it's going to be facing people more in the future than it it was in the past. Sure. Because people are now living to their 80s and 90s, which wasn't that common uh, in the 70s and 80s. Well, it's inspiring that you answered that call and took that step. You mentioned transitioning from corporate America to working for the church, diocesan life. Could you give us some insight or some details into how that came about? Father Robert Morlino had been my friend since 1977. We would spend, I'd go there for Holy Week almost every year. Uh He was a, at this time, he became a priest of the Diocese of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And so I'd visit him for Holy Week. We'd go on vacations, et cetera. And we just stayed very close. He was, he became the Bishop of Helena, Montana in uh, 1999. And 
kind of immediately called me and said, could I see my way clear to leaving corporate America and coming to work for him? <laughs> At that time, I'd just been promoted uh, the chief operating officer for the services division. Hmm. And it would, and it was a job that I'd worked hard for. Yeah. So I, I said, I'm, I can't really do it now, but I'm open to it in the future. When the sex abuse scandal hit in 2002, mm-hmm. he called with a little more urgency in his voice because he was the bishop of Helen, Montana. He had never lived in the diocese before he became a bi- the bishop there mm-hmm. and really felt that he needed help sorting through the issues. There was no game plan, really. The, the Dallas Charter was signed, I think, June 15th of 2002. It was the, That was the first time they kind of laid out a comprehensive plan, but there were still a lot of holes in, in what had been agreed to in Dallas. And it, it was kind of, it kind of hit me that at this point in time, if I was going to answer a call, it had to be now. Mm-hmm. I was living in Boston at the time, so I was reading all of these stories and everything. And it's it's kind of, because I would call him, we were friends. I would call him and I would say, how does this happen? And tell him 300 different ways why this should never happen, ways that he knew himself. Sure. And I think, honestly, he probably at one point in time looked at me and said, well, if you're so smart. <laughs> get off the sidelines here. <laughs> that's right. Maybe you, maybe you actually want to get in the game. And so I went to work for him in June of 2002 and worked for him through the end of 2015. I did some consulting work in 16 and 17 with the diocese, but that was the 13, 14 years I was actively engaged as a chancellor in a Roman Catholic diocese, mm-hmm. working on a lot of issues, but uh, working primarily on the sex abuse scandal. Yeah. What were the differences of life in corporate America and at very high levels, and then going to a diocesan operation? Well, AT&T and Lucent Technologies were multi-million dollar corporations. There were ample people to do work. There were ample people to think things through and implement different plans and programs. When I got to Helena, Montana, I was the chancellor, but there were very few people. <laughs> I mean, I think I went from a, I can't really remember how, how big. I can tell you that my management team at Lucent before I left was, I'm thinking probably 14 or 18 uh, area vice presidents. Right. And when I got to Helena, Montana, there were probably 18 people at any level yeah. in the diocese <laughs> chancery. So it was a it was a whole different ball game. Plus, no one had really thought through how are we going to go about implementing these plans to actually take care of victims, protect children, remove priests, remove abusive priests. Those were you know, they were committed to in Dallas, but no one had any real game plan of how we're going to do this. Yeah, It was thinking all those things through. I, I will say I I developed a pretty good process background in my corporate career. Uh-huh. And so that served me very well because most of the processes had to be not only they had to be created, they had to be tested, they had to be implemented. Yeah. So the fact that I'd done a lot of process work in my corporate career was very helpful in my church career. And what were some of the reactions to people when you said, 
I'm leaving this major, major position in the corporation to go to Montana and, and work for a diocese. It's hard to describe them. I mean, I, I think some people thought I was joking. I think that some people thought I was crazy. Mm-hmm. The people who knew me well, I'll say this, they weren't surprised. Uh-huh. I talked about diversity, and that was a huge thing in corporate America in the late 90s and early 2000s. And one of the things that I did for my diversity was I'd gone to Rome with with, uh, Father Morlino, actually, in 1987. And he somehow finagled me into a mass by now Saint, Pope John Paul the Great. And I did the readings for his mass. And so that I had pictures They're you know, they're papal photographers and they take pictures yeah. and they had pictures of me meeting him and doing the readings. And I'd kind of framed those and hung them up in my office as like, okay, you can, your faith can be part of your diversity. Yeah. So I don't know how, what reaction that got, but I did it. Yeah. So the, the people who knew me well and knew what it meant to me to meet John Paul. We're not surprised. But I think, you know, people who who thought a career is about making money and your title and your position, they were probably dumbfounded mm-hmm. because I didn't even have to say <laughs> that, you know, working for a, the Catholic Church was going to be a huge cut in pay. Yeah. I mean, everybody just kind of knew that. And I just gotten engaged mm. and I kind of had to look at this woman and say, okay, not only are we not going to live in Boston, but we're going to a place called Hell on a Montana. Wow. So I, I got very lucky in the woman that I chose because <laughs> I'm not sure a lot of the only question she asked me was, do I need a passport? And I said, no, it's Montana. <laughs> honey. It's, that's, part of, that's part of the continental U.S. We'll, we'll be OK. They'll search you across the border, but, you know, you, you, you don't need a passport. That's good. But she got to know the bishop. She nursed him when he had his open heart surgery. She hmm. was his major caregiver. So I got very lucky in the woman that I was going to marry because she she saw the need for the work. She saw how important the work was. And she was right by my side throughout the whole time. So I can imagine that that was quite a blessing. Huge. Yeah. And what's your wife's name and, and how did you meet? We met in 1983, shortly after I'd come to AT&T. Mm. And then I think I mentioned about a year or so later, my mom got ill and I had to tell my boss at New Jersey that I either needed to quit or he, I needed to get moved back to Denver. And they moved me back to Denver, but Mimi and I met in New Jersey. That's where I was when we met. So, yeah. you know, we stayed in touch by phone and if I was in town or if she was in town, we'd see each other. But that didn't work out very well. So we kind of lost touch. Yeah. And then in, I think it was Thanksgiving of 2000, I was in the corporate dining room and I heard this voice and I knew who it was. I didn't even turn around. I just said, Mimi Saunders. And she looked at me and that's kind of how we renewed our relationship. Hmm. So she told me it was meant to be and I have to agree with her. I I would, you wouldn't be married to me unless it was meant to be. <laughs> Especially uh, when you go to Helena, Montana. Exactly. With a Boston girl. Yeah. You know, was... <laughs> Were you in Helena the whole time or did you move to another diocese? No, I was in Helena for only a couple of years. Mm. He, I told him I thought I could get everything done in a couple, in two years. And he said, well, 
stay for three because I don't want people thinking that the chancellor position is kind of a revolving door. Right. And so I told him that was fine. And then in less than a year from that conversation, he was made the bishop of Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And when he came back to tell me, he was a little unsure of how my reaction would be. And I just looked at him. I said, "Well, you're telling me, me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was. I got her to move. To, I got her to move to Montana. If you want her to move to Madison, that's on you." <laughs> so he he came to Madison. He was made bishop of Madison in August of 2003, and I followed him in I think March of 2004. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So because we had the same issues both places, I stayed in Helena to get the original or the initial audit done Uh by the USCCB of all of our practices. And then as soon as I completed that, then I moved to Madison and got started with it there. Mm -hmm. What were some of the successes you found as you were implementing some of these processes that gave you hope that that you were working towards a, a workable solution? The framework, I think, the framework was sound. It was, you know, the devil's in the details. And in this case, the angel was in the details. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got a, the, the USCCB meeting, the Dallas Charter, it's called, laid out a good structure. But, you know, creating all of the, the meat on the bones was the challenge. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what I did in Helena, you know, helped me to come to Madison with real good ideas of what I wanted to accomplish. I think the support of the priests, this isn't talked about very much, but no one received more of a black eye from all of this than innocent priests sure. who wanted to wanted to be members of the family and encourage spiritual growth and holiness and the sacraments. They were the ones who were really caught off guard by all this because suddenly everybody in a Roman collar was under suspicion. And so I think their willingness to work with me to kind of create the processes and procedures was instrumental in in our success. Had the vast majority of the priests not kind of said, yes, we're going to do this, it would have been much more difficult because you're dealing with men who have given their life for a vision. And as a layman with a wife, I didn't play in that game. Yeah. So these were the guys who were really under the gun in terms of we need to step forward and make it clear to our people that we're not part of this, that we don't support it, that we will, even if we love a brother priest, if they're guilty, they have to go. Mm -hmm. Those were very, very difficult things for a lot of priests to do because They'd gone to the seminary with these guys. They had no idea mm-hmm. that that certain of these priests were were acting out. And this guy had been my friend since the seminary, and now I'm being told that he abused minors. Yeah, that was that was devastating. It was like if it happened in your family. Yeah. So with, without the not just the concurrence, but the active support of of the vast majority of priests in the diocese that I worked in I'm I don't know if this would even be would would have been a possible task mm-hmm. they made it possible because they were willing to say yeah those are the things we need to do until this issue has been closed mm-hmm. for once and for all 
I'm talking about men who stopped letting kids hug them mm-hmm. because somebody would look and take it the wrong way. I had a priest who loves children, but he told me honestly, he said, I don't let them hug me anymore. We do high fives or we do fist bombs. That's how I show them affection. That's how I get affection from them. I can't be seen as having my arms around a kid because of what people could misconstrue it to be. Yeah. And that's sad. I mean, that's, that's a tragedy for men who gave up a wife and kids, but never gave up the love they had for children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a, a point of suffering for so many. We've been talking to all of our guests this season about the abuse crisis, and of course it's, it's come to rear its ugly head again in a new way recently. So I've been asking guests to, to consider well, what do we do? What is, what is the way forward for us? as most of us as laity, to help the church find a way forward and to put some protections in place that we don't revisit this again in another 15 years. So would you give us your sense of that? I think what laity can do is seriously pray for your priests and befriend your priests. Realize that they are they are men. The notion that priests at one time, were put on a pedestal, and the priest could do nothing wrong. Clearly, that means they're not human, and we know they are. So even the best of men who go into the priesthood for the absolute right reasons need the support and prayers of the laity to live out their life, because they're not making that commitment for a month or a year or five years. They're making a lifelong commitment to live without many of the comforts that we as laity take for granted, to do something really remarkable in terms of bringing souls to Christ. And they need help, support, prayers of the laity to accomplish it. That's very helpful. Thank you. You you mentioned that you got married a little bit later in life. What have been some of the joys, challenges, graces that have come to you now being married to your wife? Let me think, because she will hear this, and I have to get it right. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Answer very carefully. (laughs) Yeah, I thought your last question was a challenge. This one's... (laughs) One of the reasons I didn't get married earlier was because of my own parents' issues in in terms of their health and needing help, etc. Right, yep. My brothers had been married, and so it kind of... I didn't have a sister, so the care kind of falls to the unmarried son, I guess. When I married Mimi, she had elderly parents, and I could kind of see the handwriting on the wall. But she, I I really, it's hard to express how impressed I am with her. Because, you know, she she has two brothers, uh, but she was, for her mom particularly, she was the, the main caregiver. And she handled it with uh, grace and dedication and a spirit of self-sacrifice that would impress anybody. Mm-hmm. But it, it really impressed me because I kind of lived through some of myself yeah. with my own. And then she also took on, you know, me, which was no mean feat. I mean, 
you know, we, we had this certain idea of where we were going to spend our lives. And she gave that up in an instant when she saw how important me going to work for the bishop was, how important it was to him, how important it was to me. Yeah, that it's not only, it wasn't only a sacrifice for you, but she was making a tremendous sacrifice in that. Yeah, and so much of the work I did was confidential. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really was. We didn't hide anything, but a lot of the stuff that I was told and a lot of the the investigations I did and uh, that kind of stuff, I only really had one person I could burden, and that was her. Hmm. And the bishop knew that. I told him, I, I've got to be able to blow off steam to somebody. And so he, he was fully aware, but it was, there were times she kept me saying, there's just no two ways about it. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing where you, you never choose to do it. You do it out of a sense of it's the right thing to do. I knew a bishop who wanted me to do it. It, it's never something I would say, oh, let me go apply for that job. Mm-hmm. So there, I, I never had any sense of, I never got the sense that this was a calling. I got the sense that someone needed to do it. The bishop wanted me to do it. And as a Catholic, at that point in time, how could you say no? Yeah. So she she not only put up with all that, but we would have been much more comfortable in the kind of money I was making in corporate America than in the church. Mm-hmm. We would have not been living in Helena, Montana, a beautiful place. Yeah. But if you're from Boston, a little rustic. Yeah. And then eventually you came to come back to Notre Dame. This image of, of full circle is is recurrent in your life that you met Father Robert, and then it comes full circle, and and you work for him later, that you met Mimi in your early years, and it comes full circle, and that you were here at Notre Dame, and it came full circle once again, that you came back home, in in a sense, to Notre Dame for this inspired leadership initiative. So give us a sense of how that came about, if you would. It was very interesting. I had gotten a call from the diocesan attorney in Madison, who had, uh, he was a Harvard grad, and he suggested that Harvard had a program. And he said, you know, you might want to check that out. Mm-hmm. And I looked into it, and uh, things didn't really meld well in terms of the Harvard program. But then literally within about a month, I got an email, I believe it was on LinkedIn, and I think it was one of those mass mailings they do to contact anybody who had said they were Notre Dame or whatever. And it just, it introduced the program and it said, if you're at all interested, call a young lady named Lauren Fox. Mm-hmm. She was the person signing the, the explanation, the, the layout of what the program was intended to be. I talked to her. I said, I'm not sure I qualify because they were, they, I, I don't know if they were looking or if I just implied or assumed that they were, but you know, they were corporate executives and lawyers and doctors mm-hmm. and lions and tigers and bears on high. I mean, there, were, there were just a list of these kind of power broker types, which I might have considered myself in corporate America that, although I really didn't, but it would have been more in tune with corporate. Right. When you're, when you're working for the church, even with the title of chancellor, people would say, what does a chancellor do? And I would look and say, what would you like me to do? <laughs> the role of chancellor is pretty much defined by the bishop you work for. Yeah. So I, I didn't think of myself at that moment as someone who would likely qualify for the program, but I sent them my resume and they looked it over and I got a call first from a guy, Chris Stevens, 
And he and I talked a little bit. And then it was interesting because I assumed that given what they said they were asking for, I assumed they're going to be really interested in my corporate background, you know, because that was more in tune with, I thought, what they were laying out as the parameters of the program. I think I interviewed with like four or five different people. No one, not one person asked any question about my corporate background. Hmm. It was all about what I'd done with the church. Yeah. And I, I was very, very happy to learn that the program director wanted some people with nonprofit type experience. Yeah. Because they felt that if they got into a very competitive, you know, corporate doctor, lawyer type thing, that it would take the program in a direction they weren't really excited about. Mm -hmm. So they wanted, and when I was done with the program, I uh, uh, talking with Tom Shearer, he and I had kind of an excellent interview when the program was over. And I said, did, did it work the way you intended? And this is I don't know if it's a compliment to me, but I took it as one. He said, Kevin, you were really the only nonprofit guy in the first cohort. Mm-hmm. We're going to have four in the next one. And I felt like, okay, that at least <laughs> I'm not going to continue to ask him questions because I don't want to hear what I don't want to know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'll take that as, yeah, it was worth it to have a, a nonprofit guy. Sure. So, I, I, like I said, I, I interviewed with four, four or five different people. The more I talked to them and the more I talked to Mimi, it just, it just struck me, you know, that God's really saying something here. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a really good fit. And I wasn't anticipating anything, particularly. I had some ideas about different things I wanted to try in retirement. Yeah. But I wasn't anticipating anything like that. And it just, through all the discussions with Chris and with Tom and with uh, Dr. Buttigieg and the other people I interviewed with, it just kept hitting me this is a really good fit mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like god's calling me here yeah so it was another sacrifice for mimi she was still working for hewlett packard and so she couldn't join me at in south bend mm-hmm. but she was the one who encouraged me and finally said you know this this is almost too good to be true you can't pass this up yeah so i didn't good and how did the experience shape you and possibly change the trajectory of your plans now for retirement? Well, I, I think in, if you were to talk to any of the, of the original cohort, I think we'd all speak with one voice. We were amazed at how quickly we became a very cohesive unit. And while it, it's almost like it is family, we talk openly about it like that. But it it was amazing how quickly we came together as a unit and were willing to learn from each other. There was a lawyer, Tuck Hopkins. He talked about his career, what he'd done, what he he, uh, was able to accomplish. He was the uh, diocesan attorney for Fort Wayne South Bend Uh under Bishop Darcy. So he and I had some real stories to tell. But we also had a, a doctor who you know, was constantly telling us to lose five pounds. That was fun. <laughs> we had corporate people. We had a woman worked in corporate financing. She worked for a bank, but she was heavily involved in the valuation of money, other things like that. It, it was just, it was a very eclectic group. Yep. But somehow 
by the grace of God, we just came together and we became very tight knit. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I, I think they did that on purpose in that Tom said from the beginning, if you're going to come to the first cohort, you're a co-designer. Right. And you, you need, you know, if you're looking for everything to be, you know, every plan in place, this is not the year for you. Maybe another year, but not this year. The initial cohort needs to be co-designing. Mm-hmm. Probably the single best experience for me was Steve Reifenberg's. He put together a life planning kind of seminar along with Tom. And that really was a very, very valuable because I think all of us felt a little lost in the first semester. What exactly are we being charged to do here? We were back in college. Take a bunch of guys from mid 40s to early 80s and stick them back in an environment and say, by the way, there's 500 pages to read this week. <laughs> and it was a challenge. I mean, it, it was, everybody kind of went, whoa, they're serious. Yeah. But I think as we worked our way through the process, as we kind of openly discussed the various books we were reading and classes we were taking, we began to see real value and like, yeah, you're, you're really never too old to learn. That's, you know, that's, that's a misnomer that, you can't teach an old dog new tricks because we were learning new tricks every week. Yeah. And I think all of us kind of came out of it with saying, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go home and sit in a rocker. I've still got something to contribute. Mm -hmm. And how would you characterize your conclusions of, of what you still want to contribute? So Steve would say, what, what is your, what was your key question? You would ask yourself, there was a term he used and it, everybody came up with different ones mm-hmm. and mine changed about four or five times during the year. But the last one and the one I stayed with was where can I serve? And it just, to my mind, I came there with some ideas in terms of what, what I might be able to do. And for different reasons, those just didn't seem to really take hold. So I stopped asking myself, how can I impact this or that or something? And just thought, all right, I know I can still serve. God's got to help me figure out where that's going to be mm-hmm. and how it's going to be. And I think all of us kind of in different ways kind of came to that, that notion that maybe in the next act, we're not quite as in charge as we've been all our lives with our education and with our working career, raising our family. Mm-hmm. You know, most of us were kind of take charge people. I think an insight that came to all of us in different ways, but kind of the same insight was, where can I serve? Yeah, that's an important question. I mean, to your point of people generally living longer and, and thinking about the wisdom that you've accumulated over the course of a life to to be able to pass that along and to serve others is, is a laudable goal. Well, we always ask our guests about holiness because the podcast is called Everyday Holiness. And so I'm interested to know from you, Kevin, who have been some of your models of holiness as you think back over your life to this point? And what are some ways that you have tried to strive after holiness yourself? I had... For me, it was a huge insight. I'm not sure it would be for anybody else. But it dawned on me sometime in the 80s and 90s. We've got Mother Teresa and John Paul. Mm -hmm. And they're the two most compelling characters on the world stage Mm -hmm. at this point in time. And both of them are Catholic. 
how can people not be drawn to that? Mm-hmm. Now, with the abuse scandal and other things that have been going on, it's I can now envision why people aren't drawn to it. But for me, those guys were extraordinarily compelling. Mother Teresa, in that she went and did something that no one could do, never really asked a lot of permission. She saw a need and she filled it. Mm-hmm. So those were my global, those, those were my global role models. And I felt very comfortable with following either one of them. I also had, I mentioned Father Mario, Mario Pady. Uh, he and I stayed friends for the rest of his life. Bishop Morlino, obviously. I met many good priests in my work in the church that will be friends for the rest of my life because mm-hmm. they're younger than I am. I happen to name a couple that, you know, have gone on to their reward. But I'm, I'm working as closely as I was working and with all the dirty laundry that was there. I was able to see clearly, truly heroic Catholics stand up and and be accounted for. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the priests who gave up a lot of what they really loved about the priesthood in terms of the closeness with kids. And they, no, I can't, I can't be part of that now. This is not the time. I've met sisters and holy women who support priests, do what is necessary in the church are really the backbone of the church and never once looked and said, but I'm not being recognized because they did it for the right reasons. They did it because this is a need that I can fill and I'm Catholic and I believe. And I also, the more you learn about Christ, the more compelling he is. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm pointing at people who've taken me closer to Christ, but looking beyond the people and just at Christ. To the source, right? <laughs> yeah. I think we all need help along the way, and we need to see the human condition support the human condition. That's, I mean, that's a part of this. It can't all be mystical or spiritual. But I think the time you spend with Christ, Eucharistic adoration, saying the rosary, attending Mass, those are all, those things taken as a whole are what draw you further and further into the mystery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and is is our true source of hope. Well, I want to thank you, Kevin. I think you're a source of hope to many of us, uh, someone who made a great sacrifice to go and serve the church in a difficult time and help a couple of dioceses see their way through that. And we all have hope in the future of the church, as you said, as we pray for priests and try and support them, as well as our bishops to, to find a way forward. So this has been a very helpful conversation, and we wish you well as you discern what your next act is. So thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much, Dan. That concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. If you would like to hear future episodes, feel free to subscribe to this podcast through the service of your choosing, as well as to sign up for our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash signup. Until next time, you will be in our prayers. Thanks so much. Mm